you turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, we're taking a break from the book of Hosea for a week. We're going to be in the Gospel of John, chapter 4. This is the famous interaction of Jesus with the woman at the well. Again, we are in the Gospel of John. I will be reading from the ESV version, chapter 4. Read along with me, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of our Lord. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away in the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying you have, I have no husband. For you have five husbands, and the one you are now with is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a 
woman. But no one said to him, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him and jumped down to verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is the word of God. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the blessings we receive from it. And we thank you ultimately for your son, Jesus Christ, and his sacrificial death on the cross on, on our behalf. I pray that we might be able to see this dialogue that Christ has shown to this woman and that we might be able to understand the important truths that you have for us, this living water that ultimately satisfies everything that we could ever ask for. I pray that this might be the meditations of our heart and we might be able to apply this truthfully to our lives today, help to speak through me, and may this bring glory to you. We pray this in your son's holy name. Amen. I have always hated dentists. At six years old, I was put in a straitjacket because laughing gas was not working, and the dental hygienists weren't able to hold me down as I'm screaming my head off. At 15 years old, I actually had 10 cavities all at the same time. It was so bad that they actually had to schedule multiple appointments just to make sure I got every single one of them. And you know, these dental hygiene habits, they weren't helped by a particular vice I picked up in college and had for a couple years, having a can of grizzly wintergreen long-cut chewing tobacco every single day. But when it came to my teeth, I thought the biggest problem of my life was the dentist, that they were the ones causing me pain. They were making up these issues in my life. That all changed when I met Dr. Siegel a couple years ago. And when I went to him, I, I begrudgingly trusted him. I knew he was not purposefully causing me pain. But when Dr. Siegel looked at my teeth, he didn't say, Jonathan, you have 10 cavities. He didn't even say, Jonathan, you have a root canal. He said, Jonathan, your gums are so diseased and so terrible, we're actually going to have to use laser therapy to burn most of it off. I had my own episode of Scared Straight playing in my head right at that moment, realizing that my fundamental problem in life was not with the dentist, but with myself. And you're probably wondering, right at this moment, Jonathan, what do your teeth have to do with John 4? And why is this your introduction? Because in this story, we have just seen someone meet Jesus for the first time. But the cards are stacked against her. She is a woman. She has an undisclosed past that we are going to see in our story. And her nationality would have put her at odds with the common Israelite and Jesus himself. 
But as we read this story, we see that this woman is coming to misunderstanding after misunderstanding of what truly is her biggest problem of life. And it's through this dialogue that we see with Jesus and the woman that we ourselves are brought into this conversation. And we should be actually asking the same question for ourselves. Because when you're reading John chapter 4 and you're watching Jesus speak to this woman, the question you should ask for yourself today is this. What truly is my biggest problem today? Again, if you're looking at our passage and you're asking, how should I be reading this for myself? It is this. What truly is my biggest problem today? Because beginning in our passage, beginning in verse 1, we see the first point is that Jesus is willing to speak with this woman. Look at verse 1 again. What is Jesus doing? He, the Apostle John is continuing exactly where he left off in the gospel, and I know we, we're not walking through the gospel of John, but Jesus has just been rising in infamy with the amount of people that he has been baptizing, or particularly his disciples, and he doesn't want to create competition with the other religious leader, uh, the Apostle John. So in verse 3, it tells us that he leaves the area, he leaves Judea, and he makes a trek towards Galilee, towards where he was originally in. But there's just one problem with this trek he's about to make, because look at verse 4. What does it say? He had to pass through Samaria. If you know your Old Testament well, you'd actually know that Samaria is an important geographic location. It's actually a very important area for Old Testament history and even New Testament history because back in the Old Testament, Samaria was a part of the Northern Kingdom. In fact, even in 1 Kings 16, Samaria was the capital of the Northern Kingdom before it was conquered by the Assyrians in 722 BC. But when the Assyrians conquered the Northern Kingdom and took over Samaria, they began to bring foreigners into the land. And when these foreigners came into the land, the Israelites that remained in Samaria, they began to intermarry with these foreigners. And then they began to mix and match their religious practices with these foreigners. And before long, by the time of the New Testament, they are a completely different people group than the Israelites. The Israelites had a very low opinion. In fact, they were very prejudiced. In fact, probably even bigots towards the Samaritans, that even one commentator describes the average common Israelite view of a Samaritan as children of political rebels and racially half-bred whose religious practices were tainted by unacceptable elements. But this is the tension Jesus is entering into. This is the, the conflict Jesus would be bringing himself through, walking through this land. But does Jesus allow his ministry philosophy to be interpreted by prejudice or bigotry? What does Jesus do? Look and continue in our passage. What is he doing? He came, he goes right through Samaria. He goes to a town called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jesus sits down at a well in this town. He's wearied from his journey because although he is the son of God, we see back in John chapter 1, he is the son of God made flesh. He is fully human and he is wearied from his journey. And after he's made this journey, the disciples are going into the town and they're getting food for Jesus and he's sitting there all alone. It says it's the sixth hour. And don't miss that point because the sixth hour was actually when the sun would be at its height, at its apex. It is the fiercest and hottest moment of the day. 
But it's at that moment that Jesus is sitting by himself and he sees a woman coming to his well, to the well. But not only is this the worst and hottest moment of the day, this woman is coming by herself. And that, that would be causing red flags because the, the practice back then were for women to come together to draw water. This woman is coming at the worst possible moment of the day all by herself. There is clearly something that is causing her to want to isolate herself from the community. But look at the passage, and Jesus actually, he breaks the silence. He breaks the silence simply by asking her for some water. And you can sense the confusion, the, the bemusement of the woman in verse 9, because what does she say in verse 9? How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And if you're, you're left questioning about the tension here, John doesn't leave us any question in the very next statement he makes, because Jews do not associate with Samaritans at all. In fact, Jewish custom of that time would have left it questionable whether Jesus was even ritually unclean just by speaking with the woman. But it's at this moment we begin to see the literary artistry, the craftsmanship of the Apostle John, because who was the who was Jesus speaking to in chapter 3, if you know the Gospel of John? He was speaking to Nicodemus. But who is Nicodemus? But he is a man, and he is a religious leader, and he is a faithful Israelite. But now Jesus, in chapter 4, he is speaking to a woman. She is someone of moral ill repute, and she is a Samaritan. Jesus is willing to speak to everyone in every situation of life. But is that your view of the Savior today? Is that how you view Christ? Because if you actually look at the public life and ministry of Christ in all of the Gospels, we saw that in the, the Gospel of Luke. Jesus didn't spend the bulk of his time speaking to public intellectuals or the political up-and-coming, the CEOs, the high class of society. Jesus spent the bulk of his time speaking with the down-and-outs, with the moral outcast, with the people that have made a mess of their life. In fact, Jesus, if you're left questioning what his ministry philosophy is, in Luke 5, he gives it to us, saying, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Does your personal outreach today look a little bit like Jesus? Because who is the troubled person in your life? Who is the Samaritan woman in your life that you've left on the moral outskirts, isolated, ostracized from the rest of the community? Because to be perfectly honest, I think we love to see people come to church. We love to see people have an authentic relationship with God and Christ, come to a full awareness of the gospel, so long as that person, he has a spouse, he has two kids, a nice salary position, a house, a car. He's in a good socioeconomic status in life, and the worst vice he has is spending a little too much time on social media. That's a discipleship program that I can handle for myself, but then the alcoholic comes into my life, then the prostitute, then the paranoid schizophrenic, then the criminal, the person that can't hold a job for more than a couple weeks, he comes into my life, and I start to question how much this is going to cost me. I start to make excuses. I try to find ways of not bringing these people into my life. Is that what we see Jesus doing in the passage today? In fact, 
going beyond John chapter 4, do we see Christ doing that at any point, at any time, in any situation, ever? Because he's never one who actively avoids anyone. Jesus is the one who is able to speak to both the religious elites, Nicodemus, and the Samaritan woman who has made a mess of her life. Jesus is the one who's not creating a homogenous group of believers. Jesus is bringing people in every socioeconomic status of every position of life. And no matter what our failures are today, whatever mistakes we've made, whatever we have done with our life and wherever we find ourselves in life, this is the savior that has no social bars for the acceptance of the gospel. In fact, going beyond that, because Christ is the savior of both the criminals and the CEOs, we who have experienced God's grace for ourselves are to show that same love to everyone in our lives, showing Christ to the people we least expect to respond to the gospel and the people that we actively have kept out of our lives. Because this is exactly what we see Jesus doing in our passage today. But not only do we see the fact that Jesus is just willing to speak with the woman, don't miss that point. He's even willing to speak with her. But keep going in the passage. We see Jesus is willing to help this woman. Beginning in verse 10, we begin to see that motif I was speaking of, that Jesus will tell her one thing, and then the woman will interpret his words in a completely different way. And we see that just beginning in verse 10, that Jesus asked for the water, and then he talks about living water, but that don't miss that phrase, living water, because if we were just interpreting that phrase in a very natural perspective, the woman, actually her response makes very much sense because not living water, you would just assume the fact Jesus is speaking about a spring, a well of water that they were not aware of. That's exactly how the woman interprets his words, saying, Jesus, are you telling us that we as a people have not found a well, a well spring that we have not been using for this whole time that we're basically a bunch of idiots, that even our patriarch Jacob was unable to have this well. And she's calling him a charlatan, so you can almost sense the offense that she has in her voice when reading this. But actually, Jesus, read his words. How does Jesus respond in verse 10? If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And when we begin to look at that idea of living water. The Israelites reading this, they might have, and you might even hear this for yourself, you would begin to hear echoes of what Christ is just saying of the prophet Isaiah here. Because in the Old Testament, in the prophecies in the Old Testament, particularly Isaiah, God promises in the latter days that God's, that God's people would draw water from wells of salvation that they would no longer hunger or thirst, that they would actually have his spirit poured out into their hearts and they would exchange empty formalism for an authentic and inner transformed relationship with the God they claimed to worship. And this is the promise that Christ is offering this woman right now. How does the woman read her words or read his words? Read Verse five, or 15, what does she say? Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. But Jesus has just offered her the answer to every single problem that she's ever had in life, that she can actually have an authentic relationship with the God of the universe. 
and she's still thinking that her biggest problem is having a glass of water and quenching her thirst. That she's thinking too little of what God is offering her, and how often do we fall into that same promise, that same problem? Because C.S. Lewis describes this very aptly in ourselves, that we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like ignorant children who want to go on making mud pies in a slum when we cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. It's at this moment that we begin to see Jesus is probing into the situation. He's getting at the heart of what really is the problem of this woman, because he simply asked for her to go get her husband. She says, I don't have a husband. But look at what Christ says in verse 17. He is the master counselor. And he says, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have five husbands. The one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. You don't need to understand cultural background to get the shock of what has just happened, because in our culture today, we judge Ernest Hemingway for having four wives. This woman has had five failed marriages. That rabbinic law actually would have made it judgmental. There was, it was shameful for them to have three failed marriages, and there was no exception for the common law situation she was in. That we, are, as readers, now understand why this woman is isolating herself, why she has ostracized herself and is coming alone at this moment, that she is feeling shame and guilt, and probably the community has publicly isolated her to begin with, and now she is all by herself. But not only this, but now she is being publicly confronted by a stranger she just met with a secret she thought she kept from the world. Imagine for a moment that people, your friends, saw you who you, you really are. All your character flaws, your vices, all the habits and actions that we keep to ourselves. The way that we act when no one is watching. Because for many of us, I don't think the problem is that we don't want to speak with the Samaritan woman. I think the problem may be that we feel we're on the same moral playing field as this woman. That we present a, a front, we present a facade, a, a mask for our face of how we present ourselves to the world and to our friends and how we act when no one is watching. We just like this woman like to put on a mask and not tell people how we truly think. We hide our mistakes, our failures from the world. Even the poet Paul Dunbar once said, we wear the mask that grins and lies. It hides our cheeks and shades our eyes. This debt we pay to human guile, with torn and bleeding hearts, we smile. And imagine for a moment now, it's not your friend that sees you for who you really are. But now it is the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has just confronted you. How are you going to respond in that moment? Because we see exactly what this woman does. And you may be tempted. I know I'm tempted to do exactly what this woman does. She turns this into the floor of presbytery. Jesus, you worship in Jerusalem. We worship in Mount Gerizim. What's your opinion about that theological issue? That she likes to hide behind theology with being publicly confronted. That that's really easy for a lot of us to do. Think of 2 Timothy chapter 3. And eventually we will actually be going through this book. But 2 Timothy chapter 3, it says 
that all scripture is profitable for teaching. And we say amen to that. But then we hear that it rebukes us. It corrects us and it trains us in righteousness. And we get a little uncomfortable. But even with her evasive heart and even with our evasive heart, Jesus is still coming alongside this woman, coming alongside us, showing that there is still a misunderstanding of what he is offering her and what the gospel is offered to us today. Because if we were to summarize verses 21 through 23, Jesus is basically telling the woman, you're missing the point. Because it doesn't matter where the location of worship is going to be in these latter days, because there is something fundamentally changing, a paradigm shift in this time, that someone is coming that is going to completely alter what true worship, or true worship of God looks like. And in verse 24, Jesus basically summarizes the point of his whole dialogue, saying in verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And Jesus isn't saying there you got to be a little truthful when you're worshiping and you got to have a little bit of emotion and spirit that essentially the words Jesus is saying here to flush it out, true worship of God seeks him through the new life given by the Holy Spirit on the basis of Christ's death and resurrection because he is the embodiment of God's truth. This woman has just walked into a conversation thinking that her biggest problem in life is I just want a glass of water, Jesus. What's your biggest problem today? Whether it's financial or emotional or intellectual or spiritual or relational or medical or on and on and on that we can go. Our list will keep going and we have our own perceived issues of life. We have our own problems of what we think is the most distressing issue that is confronting us. And when we are confronted by reality, whether that is by someone or by events in life, we might minimize the problem. We might hide from the problem. We might even isolate ourselves just like this woman. But think back to that original question that we asked at the very, the question we should be asking ourselves in this, in this whole chapter. What's my biggest problem? In reality, Jesus is going way beyond just having us ask that question, because it is at this point of our text that Jesus is actually giving us the answer to that question, that the very thrust of this entire chapter and the takeaway statement you need to hear is this, through his death and resurrection, Jesus alone satisfies your deepest problems today. Again, through what Christ is going to accomplish at the cross, he alone satisfies your deepest problems today. And whether you find yourself as the religious elite like Nicodemus, or like this Samaritan woman, the down and out, the outcast of society, Jesus offers you the same answer to life, that he is the one that tears off our mask, our facade, and whatever mistakes and failures or sin that we might be holding on to that Christ has come and died on the cross for our sins. And when we have put our faith in him as our savior, when we have turned from our sins, God is no longer looking at us and looking at our sin. That when he looks at us, he only sees Christ and everything he has accomplished. In fact, when he looks at us, he looks at you and says, that is my child. 
with an ending like that, with a point like that, what more can we even say about this passage? Because we see the fact that Jesus is willing to speak with the woman. We see the fact that Jesus is willing to help this woman. But finally, in our final passage, verses 25, Jesus is willing to send out this woman. She's not as she's a Samaritan, and she's not missing the implications of what Jesus is in, uh, uh, implying here. She understands that there is something, someone coming, that is going to alter what true worship of God is going to look like. The Samaritans, they had the first five books of the Old Testament. The, they had their own version of the Pentateuch. But they were also looking to that same promise in Deuteronomy 34.10 that said there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses who knew the Lord face to face. That they were also looking for a messianic figure that was going to come in the latter days and was going to reveal to them what true worship of God looked like. Then Jesus drops the bombshell right at that moment saying, I who speak to you am he. From this short interaction, the woman's life has been completely altered forever, that she thought her biggest priority was just getting a glass of water. But now that the disciples are returning, if you keep reading in the passage, they have returned, but the woman is not, very, is not there for very long. But actually, when she's leaving, what happened? What is the thing that changed? And it's very easy for us to miss this, but what is the thing that the woman has left behind? What is the one thing she's leaving behind? Look at verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? This woman's priorities at earlier were just getting a glass of water. This woman's priorities were ostracizing and isolating herself from society. But now this woman's priorities are making known this savior and making known the satisfaction that Christ is offering to everyone in that community. In fact, if you're skeptical that Jesus is making her an evangelist here, you can jump down to verse 39 that we just read, and you heard for yourselves that the Samaritans, they came to Jesus because of the woman's testimony, but then it is because of Jesus' own words that they see for themselves that he is the savior of the world. That that is exactly what a heart transformed by the gospel looks like, that you cannot keep this message to yourself, but that this inner satisfaction, what the gospel does in your life and the transformation it offers through a heart renewed by the Holy Spirit, through the Savior Jesus Christ, you have to make that known to everyone you know in your life. Think about everything that water jar represented to the woman at that moment. And she's abandoning it and returning to the community she has kept herself for so long from. Because whatever jar you have right now in your life that you are holding on to, whatever problems you're carrying in your life, whatever guilt and shame you might hold to, the gospel tears off our mask, our facade, and out of a sheer love for the Savior, Jesus Christ, we are to go out into this community and show the satisfaction that Christ offers all of us, that we can have a renewed relationship with the God of the universe. We can actually have our sins forgiven and come into this relationship with God 
that this Savior, Jesus Christ, has broken down every single barrier. And whatever water jar you're holding on to right now, the transformation this woman had in her life is the same transformation God is offering you in Christ Jesus today, that he is the fount of living water he was offering, that he satisfies our deepest problems. And when we turn to him as our Savior, when we turn to him in faith and repentance, it doesn't matter where you are in your life right now, that you will find satisfaction, you will find forgiveness, and you will have this renewed relationship with the God of the universe. Because Jesus alone offers you, is he is the Savior who alone answers your deepest problems today. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for Christ, who is the fount of living water, that he alone is the one who offers us this promise of forgiveness, and that all of us who have turned to him in faith, that we are turning to him as our Lord and Savior, we will find forgiveness for our sins. We will be brought into this relationship, and no matter what problems we hold in our lives, that we know that you are our Savior, you are there for us, and that you are our Heavenly Father who is taking care of us. I pray for any of us that might be holding on to any form of guilt and shame, might be isolating themselves from people they know, that they know they can find hope in the gospel, they can find hope in the Savior, and that he will answer the deepest problems that they are facing in life. Pray for all of us today that we might be able to see this truth for ourselves and we might turn to the Savior. Pray this in his name. Amen.